Production made possible in part by MedPlus Advantage. You're listening to Radio Rounds, a talk show created and hosted by medical students, where today's stories are told by tomorrow's doctors. I'm your host, John Corker. Coming up on today's show, Radio Rounds director Dr. Lakshman Swamy sits down with Dr. Jerry Avorn, professor of medicine at the Harvard Medical School, to discuss his views on the manufacture and marketing of prescription drugs in the United States and how this, quote, drug game can seriously impact patients. It was it was really kind of striking and a little upsetting that there was an awful lot that was known about drugs and what their best use was and what their problems were. And then when we would go and look at what was actually happening on the front lines, particularly in, in primary care, there seemed to be a bit of a disconnect. I came to realize that in part that was because some of the disconnect resulted from the overuse of drugs that were very heavily promoted but were not so great. And this was an era when the FDA still had a category called possibly effective, which meant that there was really no evidence that it worked. More from our conversation with Harvard Medical Professor Dr. Jerry Avorn, right now on Radio Rounds. Welcome to Radio Rounds, everyone. I'm John Corker. I'd like to take a second this week to quickly congratulate Radio Rounds founders Dr. Shami Das and Dr. Lakshman Swami for graduating from medical school yesterday. It's been a long five years for both of them as they received dual degrees, both in their MD and in their MBAs. We're so proud of them. I'm so proud to call them colleagues. And they join the ranks of Radio Rounds founder and current internal medicine intern, Dr. Avash Kalra, in physicianhood. I'm looking forward to joining those ranks someday. Last week, Radio Rounds director Dr. Lakshman Swami sat down with Dr. Mitesh Patel, the co-founder of DocFin, a web-based service that helps physicians and students to stay connected to the medical literature. They spoke about the importance of staying up-to-date in medicine and described how DocFin makes it easier. This week, Swami is back as he catches up with Dr. Jerry Avorn, professor of medicine and chief of the divisions of pharmacoepidemiology and pharmacoeconomics, at Harvard Medical School. Dr. Avorn uses an interdisciplinary approach to evaluate the effectiveness of existing and new prescription drugs in relation to their risks and costs, and to study how medications are used by physicians and patients. He also authored the book, Powerful Medicines, describing the benefits, risks, and costs of prescription drugs, and he'll be discussing his views on the ongoing multi-billion dollar, quote, drug game that is played every day in the United States healthcare system. Swami begins the interview by asking Dr. Avorn how he became interested in studying the business of prescription drugs. We're here today with Dr. Jerry Avorn at the Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, Massachusetts. Dr. Avorn is the Chief of Pharmacoepidemiology and Pharmacoeconomics, as well as being, by training, an internist, a geriatrician, and, uh, of course, a drug researcher. So, Dr. Avorn, to start this off, what, what does that mean? What is pharmacoepidemiology and pharmacoeconomics? It's an attempt to look at the effects of drugs, both good and bad, in populations of patients, because very often, particularly when it comes to side effects, we aren't able to know enough about the risk of a given side effect in uh, the pre-marketing studies that are done before a drug's released onto the market. 
And then the pharmacoeconomics part is about looking about whether the drug is actually worth what it costs. And in the U.S., where we have the highest drug prices in the world and the highest per capita drug expenditure in the world, it's increasingly important to look at whether a given product is really worth what we need to pay for it. Nowadays, it seems like studying drug effects on a population level, thinking about cost, is almost accepted. It's it's just what we do now because that's what's in the news all the time. But I don't think it was like that in the past. What was your experience thinking about these things when you were going through your training, for example, in medical school? Yeah, one of the uh, downsides of being into something before any or before a lot of people are into it is that you can be branded as somebody who has deviant interests. And that was certainly what happened to me when I was um, a medical student here, that uh, a number of people on the faculty essentially said, why would you want to study that? That's not really science. That's not really, you know, we're, we, we study the mechanisms of disease and we are interested in in genes and test tubes and rats and stuff. And what kind of research is that about what doctors prescribe and why they prescribe it? So it took about 30 years before people were willing to agree that this was a legitimate field of study here in Boston, and uh, it was not easy going. In your training and experience, what, what kind of problems did you see that made these issues pertinent at the time to you? Well, it was noticing what a big difference there was between the pharmacology and therapeutics that we were learning about in the classroom and what seemed to be going on in typical practice uh, to the extent that we got to see much of that in um, in medical school, and it was it was really kind of striking and a little upsetting that there was an awful lot that was known about drugs and what their best use was and what their problems were, and then when we would go and look at what was actually happening in on the front lines, particularly in in primary care, there seemed to be a bit of a disconnect, and I came to realize that in part that was because some of the disconnect resulted from the overuse of drugs that were very heavily promoted but were not so great. And this was an era when the FDA still had a category called possibly effective, which meant that there was really no evidence that it worked. And so these possibly effective drugs were widely used for things like uh, opening up the blood flow to the brain for patients with Alzheimer's, which of course was totally bogus, or um, a drug named Darvon, or which uh, the generic is propoxyphene, which was finally, after 30 years of agitation, taken off the market just a couple of years ago because it really was more of a risk than a benefit. Uh, and there was a lot of use of those drugs that uh, seemed to me to fly in the face of the science. So I was wondering, why is it that we and academics were not able to get our message about evidence-based medicine across to doctors as effectively as the folks in the drug companies were who would send people to your office and persuade you to use these drugs, even when they may not have been the best choice. And so that, that kind of led to a whole area of, of research of so-called academic detailing that I, I came up with in a federal um, grant application that I wrote about two years after my residency, in which I said to the feds, why don't we try an experiment and see whether we can improve doctors prescribing by doing this active uh, social marketing of evidence by folks from medical schools uh, that would use a lot of the techniques that the drug companies use to go out to the doctor's office and engage them and talk with them, but do it only in the service of evidence-based prescribing. When I was a medical student uh, getting my white coat for the first time, the uh, Arnold P. Gold Foundation actually sponsored all of my, all the students in my class to get, actually, your book, Powerful Medicines. Can you tell us a little bit about that? 
Sure. Around 2002 or so, it seemed like it might be an interesting thing to just set down on paper what I had figured out at that point over a couple of decades of um, thinking about these issues. And I wanted to write a book that uh, was both interesting for medical students, but also for intelligent lay people, as well as uh, folks who are physicians already. And so the result was, as you said, powerful medicines, the, uh, the benefits, risks, and costs of prescription drugs. And I got it published by Alfred A. Knopf in New York. Uh, and it is now out in paperback. And it was a way of throwing together a lot of themes, whether it's about how to think about prescribing, how to think about healthcare delivery, how does one balance risks and benefits, which was not anything I'd ever heard much about in medical school, uh, how do we think about costs, what are the ethical issues, what are the clinical issues, and I had a lot of fun writing and was delighted when the Gold Foundation decided that they were going to give it out to lots and lots of medical students around the country. If we could take a second now and address some of the what I think of as some of the, the, the toughest things to think about when you think about prescription drugs. And it sounds like we've talked a little bit about one already dealing with drug companies going straight to doctors. What about when drug companies go straight to consumers, direct-to-consumer advertising? I'm not a big fan of, uh, as you might imagine, of direct-to-consumer drug advertising. Uh, most listeners will know that uh, we are the only country in the world, apart from New Zealand, where that's permitted. Every other country on earth has the position that we had in this country until the late 90s that these are not things you can put into a 60-second commercial, that the issues are a little bit more complex, and that we shouldn't be selling drugs the way we sell hamburgers and, and uh, Chevrolets to people. But it's there, and we do need to practice in a world in which that's the case. One slight good part of it, although most parts of it are bad, one slight good part is that it does make the patient feel like they're more of a participant in the discussion with the doctor. And But of course, the, the downside of that is that a lot of my colleagues tell me they have to spend a lot of time that they don't have explaining to patients why they do not need that nifty drug they saw on the evening news last night. But it does keep us on our toes, and it requires a different way to think about interacting with patients as educated or somehow miseducated consumers that we need to talk to about these things. For someone who's out there who's not in healthcare themselves, who sees some of these ads, I, I feel like it can it paints a picture that there's kind of magic in, in in the medicine, and I think that's something that the clinicians struggle with because we know that that's not really the case. But you take it almost a step further, where you show that not only is there not necessarily magic, but sometimes when drugs get pushed through and are available to a lot of people, you don't start to see some of the negative effects until you really look at large groups of people, large populations. Can you talk about an example where you notice these effects when they had not really been found before? Yeah, we did some of the earliest research on Vioxx and uh, Orofococcib, if we're going to use the generic name. Now that it's off the market, that probably doesn't matter much. A colleague of mine, Dan Solomon, who's a rheumatologist as well as a drug epidemiologist, became concerned about the question of whether there might be a pharmacologic basis for worrying about a cardiac risk of the COX-2 inhibitors. And we try to see whether anybody would fund us to look at some large population databases to see whether you could find that pattern in large numbers of people who were taking Vioxx compared to similar people who were not taking Vioxx. And in fact, if one goes back, there were clues or signals or suggestions of cardiac problems with Vioxx even before it was approved for marketing. And we were not able to get funding from NIH or AHRQ or FDA, which does not have very much money for, for extramural funding. But it was an important 
problem. And there happened to have been a very honorable and smart epidemiologist at Merck at that time who actually passed away soon afterwards named Harry Guess. And I went to Harry and I said, look, this is an important issue. You guys are making this drug. You're selling a ton of it. Don't you think there's a responsibility to follow up on some of these questions? And of course, the smoking gun was the Vigor study, which was published in the New England Journal in 2000, in which there was a fourfold increase in the rate of heart attacks in people taking Vioxx compared to naproxen, which is Aleve, uh, which was the comparison drug. And the folks uh, from Merck, uh, who are among the co-authors, said, isn't that great? Naproxen prevents heart attacks, when in fact, that was not what was going on. Vioxx was causing them. So to make a long story short, when nobody else would fund it, we persuaded Merck to give us some research dollars to fund it as long as we could publish whatever we found. And in a paper that ended up being published in, in the journal Circulation, Dan Solomon, Sebastian Schneeweiss, and, and I and others in our group did in fact show that patients taking Vioxx had a higher risk of having heart attacks than patients taking similar drugs that were not Vioxx after controlling for all the differences that we could possibly control for. And Merck immediately, even though they had known the protocol that we had we were doing for a year or two at that point, said, what a dumb study this is, even though they had funded it. They did it wrong. You can't believe any of these observational studies. And they even pulled one of their um, employees off of the paper so that they could disassociate themselves from it and then put out a, a statement saying what bad science it was. Of course, it turned out that we were right and they were wrong. And uh, a year later, the drug had to be taken off the market because of the fact that it did indeed double the risk of heart attack or stroke. So I think that, that this brings up an important point, which is that we look to drug companies to produce these new drugs and new therapies, which, uh, of course, they have done for many, many years. And at the same time, they are businesses that are trying to make money. And I can imagine from Merck's perspective, someone at Merck is saying, well, there might be a problem here, but we're so deeply invested in this drug and all of this. And of course, there's all kinds of ethical issues there. But I guess my question is, if we're looking to companies like this for to innovate drugs, is, is there another way? Is there a better model maybe to to keep the innovation coming, to keep producing new therapies and drugs with less conflict and less potential for issues like this? That raises a lot of interesting points, the first of which is the extent to which innovation comes from drug companies versus from taxpayer-funded, uh, NIH-funded investigators who may be working in medical schools or academic medical centers uh, in a nonprofit mode. And I think there's been a bit of an overstatement of the idea that drug companies need to make enormous profits because they plow them right back in to do research, and without those enormous profits, we will not have any new drugs. There's a couple of facts that really belie that. One of them is the fact that if you look at the amount of money spent on research and development in drug companies, it is only a, a very modest proportion of revenue. And in fact, the amount spent on marketing and advertising and administration is much, much greater. And if you were asking if you want to spend a dollar to get um, innovation, that dollar is going to be much more likely to 100% of it be spent on innovation research if it goes to NIH rather than to a company. Although, you know, we don't want to bash the companies and we certainly don't want them to go out of business to the point where they can't do research because some of them do do useful research, less so than they argue, but there is important research and good scientists there. Uh, but the question is when there is an important innovation, and my colleague Aaron Kesselheim, who is an internist as well as a 
patent attorney in my division here uh, at the Brigham, is looking at this question of where do drug discoveries come from. And very often it is the lone scientist working in uh, his or her lab, often in a, uh, in a non-profit, non-profit entity with public funding, that will come up with the seminal discovery, like, for example, Dr. Judah Folkman um, here at Harvard who discovered tumor angiogenesis with NIH dollars down the street at Children's Hospital. Uh, that made it possible for there to be a lot of blockbuster drugs like Avastin and so forth. But the way the patent laws are written, the discovery doesn't really end up being something that one can make money on, but it's really only the end product. And we have a system in which the end product ends up being in the hands of the companies, and then we have to figure out how we're going to keep funding basic science. But as long as there's fair deals between the which there sometimes are and sometimes aren't, between the people making the discoveries on the taxpayer's dime and the companies that are marketing the product, if the flow of, of, of dollars is not all in one direction, that could be a way that we might be able to subsidize the kind of basic research. But the idea that somehow if it wasn't for the drug companies, we would have zero new drugs is probably uh, an overstatement of, of fact. In my my very limited experience, it seems like nowadays we're seeing more and more of the same drug with different names, with you know kind of marginally better profile side effect profiles or effects or or whatever. It seems like there's less actually new drugs and more kind of these what what I've heard to is referred to as these me too drugs. And just thinking about what you just said, that seems like it could be a consequence of less basic science funding, which leads to less basic science discoveries which leads to the, whoever is making drugs anywhere needing to continue to make drugs but not having a new innovation to work off of so they kind of just improve and improve and improve the drugs that they already are making. Uh, that sounds like a good thing, that, they, that you're just continuing to improve drugs, but it seems like that's, there's something more to it there. Yeah, well, we've really created an incentive system, in, and your MBA will make this clear to you, in, in, as you as you complete that degree, where we really are incentivizing this kind of me tooism in in pharmacology. Now, sometimes a me too drug can be an improvement, and there's a lot to be said for that. Uh, and many of the drugs that we use now as our first line drugs were the second, third, or fifth drug in their class. So I'm not implying that it's always a bad thing to have a drug that's just a little tweak of the old drug. But what we really, really need is drugs that are dramatic departures. And the trouble is that if there's so much incentive for a company to just make a uh, D-isomer or an L-isomer of an existing drug and patent it anew, which we do allow to happen, and then market it like crazy and make the drug uh, a blockbuster, then any smart MBA sitting within a company is going to say, why are we beating our heads against the wall to do all this very difficult basic research and drug discovery when we can just tweak the existing molecule, the best example of which is uh, Nexium. Uh, or S-omeprazole, which is merely the S or L isomer of plain old omeprazole, which used to be Prilosec. And AstraZeneca had a real um, windfall in uh, in Prilosec, and as its patent was expiring, it kind of shifted the mantle of this is the purple pill that everyone needs to take from Prilosec to Nexium, only by virtue of changing uh, it from the racemic mixture to the uh, L isomer. And that has been an annuity for AstraZeneca also. If we are going to, as a healthcare system, keep paying very high prices for drugs which are essentially identical to other drugs, then we're just going to keep reinforcing the companies to keep doing that kind of drug discovery. And the, the sad consequence uh, is that not only for the 
patients, but also the companies don't do so well. AstraZeneca at present is uh, having some very big financial problems, in part, one might argue, uh, because they were able to do so well with the various purple pills that they were not very successful in putting resources into discovering actual new products. Well, it sounds like what a lot of what you're talking about is something that we've touched on a little bit in this discussion, but haven't talked about directly, which is the FDA. So can you tell me what role does the FDA play and what are any problems or opportunities for the FDA to have, whether a bigger or smaller role, a better role? There's a number of things FDA can and should do a better job with. And then there's a number of other things that are beyond what FDA can do. But luckily, uh, there are other entities that are coming forth to do them. What FDA needs to do better, and this became really clear uh, with the Vioxx debacle, is it needs to get better at spotting drug side effects once a drug is on the market, uh, and or even beforehand, but, but some side effects are going to be apparent only after the drug's in widespread use. And actually, Vioxx led to a number of congressional hearings and high-level reports that caused Congress to tell FDA you got to do a better job of doing active surveillance for problems. And it led to some very concrete and very effective solutions, one of which is called the Sentinel system, in which the FDA is now, because Congress made them, monitoring about 100 million people um, at any given moment who are taking drugs in a variety of settings, and we have all that information on computers, and is able to uh, look at, is there a higher rate of this or that in people taking this new drug? and find out about it so that we're not ever again in the situation that we were in with Vioxx, where it was on the market for five years and about 20 million Americans took it before we found out, oh, it doubles your risk of heart attack or stroke. And by the way, it's not any better analgesic than what we already had. And I think we'll be in a better position going forward, ironically, because of the Vioxx tragedy, to have mechanisms that FDA will be able to use to spot these problems earlier. But even more important than that is uh, this new entity called PCORI, which stands for the Patient-Centered Outcomes Research Institute. Another development of just the last couple of years is that we finally have a mechanism for supporting studies of drugs head-to-head with each other, which FDA does not require and the companies don't like to do. But... If we feel as clinicians uh, or, or citizens that we'd like to know whether drug A works better than drug B, we now have a mechanism, unless it gets undone in the political process in the coming months, in which there is going to be about a half a billion dollars a year to fund studies that patients and doctors need, even if the companies don't particularly want to fund them, that will ask those comparative effectiveness questions that are exactly what we need to be able to do more evidence-based prescribing. So in that sense, things are much more optimistic, at least this week, than they were when I when I uh, wrote Power for Medicines, because those things were not yet in place, and now a couple of years later they are. We've talked about a number of different players in the drug game, if you will, and there's a lot of problems, it sounds like. There's some hope with some new organizations like PCORI, but I just want to know if you could kind of prioritize the top couple things that we really need to do as a, as a nation to have better have a better handle on all of this. What would you say are the most important, highest yield differences that we could make? I think the most useful things 
and actually are things that we have begun to do to establish a means of evaluating drugs that sets a higher bar than FDA's current requirements, which often amount to um, compare your new drug to a placebo and see if you can make a lab test like an LDL or a hemoglobin A1C look better in a 12-week study and you got yourself a drug. That may be what FDA continues to do because I don't think they're going to change. But as long as we have a means of really evaluating those drugs and this whole so-called comparative effectiveness research movement uh, out there to be able to answer the questions that doctors and patients want the answers to. I like to say that I never had a patient come to me when I was doing primary care and say, Dr. Averon, could you please prescribe me something that is probably a little better than nothing? But in fact, if you look at the criteria for a lot of drug approvals, what the companies demonstrate is that with a p-value of less than 0.05, it's probably a little better than nothing. And that's a too low a standard for us to have as a healthcare system. With the kind of research that PCORI is is about to embark on doing, we can really get those kinds of questions answered because nobody else is coming forward to do it. And the other development that I would like to see is actually happening, which is, as I mentioned, this systematic surveillance of large populations with protection of privacy. We don't need in this research to know that it was Mrs. Jones who took the pill, but just knowing that there was a patient exposed to drug X and then had you know, a stroke, a heart attack, uh, a GI bleed or whatever, and being able to look in an epidemiologically rigorous way at is that happening more often with drug X than drug Y after adjusting for all the differences. That is also something which is up and running and it will be more so every year. So in that sense, uh, those are the two things that if I had a wish to make five years ago, that's what I would have wished for and we actually are getting there. You're listening to Radio Rounds, and I'm John Corker. That was Dr. Jerry Avorn, author of Powerful Medicines, describing the benefits, risks, and costs of prescription drugs. We hope you'll join us next week for Rounds, as we are proud to feature American Medical Association President Dr. Jeremy Lazarus. I'll sit down with Dr. Lazarus to discuss today's hot-button health policy topics, as well as the AMA's new strategic plan to drastically improve nationwide health outcomes in both diabetes and cardiovascular disease. In the meantime, remember that you can download podcasts of all past episodes. Just search the iTunes store for Radio Rounds, or visit us at www.radiorounds.org. You can also contact our team via email, like us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter. All of that information at radiorounds.org. Production made possible in part by MedPlus Advantage. Sponsored by the American Medical Association. Providing group disability and life insurance to students and residents through participating educational institutions. Visit us at medplusadvantage.com. AMA Insurance is pleased to introduce an individual disability insurance plan called Essentials for MedPlus Advantage participants. Through this plan, eligible graduating medical students have a special one-time opportunity to apply for high-quality individual disability insurance with no intrusive or time-consuming medical exams and only a few basic questions, and with discounted premiums. Apply now as the enrollment period ends soon. Radio Rounds is also proudly partnered with the Student Doctor Network online at studentdoctor.net. Find answers to your questions about medical school or residency programs. Ask questions in our online forums and get answers quickly. It's fast, easy, and available now at studentdoctor.net. Of course, please remember that the views and opinions expressed on Radio Rounds are not representative of the views and opinions of the partners of Radio Rounds or of the Wright State University Boonshoff School of Medicine. Thanks so much for joining us, everyone, and have a fantastic week.
Once again, our most heartfelt congratulations go out to our friends, colleagues, and Radio Rounds co-founders, Drs. Lakshman Swami and Shami Das. For our entire staff here at Radio Rounds, I'm John Corker, and one day, just like Lakshman and Shami, I'll be your doctor.